Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Alrighty, episode three, here we are, let's do it. Okay, so... This episode is going to round off our kind of opening three-parter on those two words, I believe. Okay, so we've talked about faith and we've talked about the existence of God. And in our last episode, we ended on this idea that at some point, God has to reveal himself to us. Okay, so that's what we're going to cover in today's episode, divine revelation. Now, That term divine revelation might sound a little bit dry or academic or boring, but let me tell you, this episode is going to be anything but that because we are going to be covering questions like, what's the deal with the Bible? Is it reliable? Is it the word of God? Who has the authority to interpret it? Why don't Catholics believe in this idea of sola scriptura, okay, or the Bible alone? Why do we have a teaching body or a magisterium? And who gave those guys authority to teach? So, okay, there are going to be some spicy questions in this episode, okay? And there's also going to be like a lot in this episode. We have a lot to cover in the next half hour. So I just want to reassure you that if there's stuff that kind of flies by you or it's sort of information overload, that's totally fine, okay? Let it wash over you. Let it fly by you. Take in what you can. And then later on, you can always come back and revisit it, especially after we've gone a few episodes in and you want to go back and revisit some of this foundational stuff. Okay, so before we start unpacking the question of how God reveals himself to us, it might be useful to start with the question of why God reveals himself to us in the first place. Because you know how you encounter people who'll say, you know, yeah, okay, I believe that there could be a God, but I don't think that he cares about us or cares about us knowing him. I think he just made us and then was like, okay, bye, I'm going to go do my own thing now, you're on your own, and sort of left us to our own devices. Well, in response to that idea, I would say, let's return to our definition of God. And we covered this a little bit in the last episode, and we will continue to look at it in the next episode. But one of the ways that we as Christians define God is by saying that he is love itself. Okay, He is that reality of love itself. Now, what do we know about love? Well, one thing that we know is that it is relational. Yeah. So I don't just like love in the abstract. Okay. My love is always directed at something or someone. Now, that does not mean that God needed to create us because his love is relational. As we will explore in the episode on the Trinity, God perfectly lives out that relational love within himself. Okay. So he didn't need to create us, but having created us, This God, who is love itself, by definition, is never going to leave us alone. So this is how the Catechism begins section 1, chapter 2 on divine revelation. Point number 52 reads, By revealing himself, God wishes to make us capable of responding to him and of knowing him and of loving him far beyond our own natural capacity. 
So in other words, God doesn't just reveal himself to us to be like, nah, okay, look at me, God, look how incredible and amazing I am, which he totally could do, by the way, because he is God. But no, God reveals himself to us because he loves us and he wants us to be able to love him in return. Now, you might hear that and think, Right. Well, if God loves us so much and he wants to be in relationship with us so badly, then how come he makes it so difficult? Like, why does he seem hidden? Why is it so hard for us to find him? Why can't we, for instance, be born with a kind of, you know, infused knowledge of God? And that is actually a fantastic idea. <laughs> okay. In fact, it is such a good idea that it was God's original idea. So we will unpack this more when we start talking about salvation history. But in a nutshell, plan A was that we would be born with an infused knowledge of God. We wouldn't have to seek him. We would already know him from birth. The problem is when we cut ourselves off from that relationship with God and original sin entered the world, one of the consequences of that is that we lost that inherent infused knowledge of him. And that meant that God was kind of like a stranger to us, in a sense. Like, God had to start from scratch, yeah, and reveal himself to us again bit by bit over time. And that took time. So we see this sort of unfolding throughout the Old Testament. God reveals himself to Noah and to Abraham and to his people Israel. He speaks to Moses and speaks through the prophets, and he slowly reveals things to them about his nature and his, his will for them and his love for them. Now, we don't have time to go into all of the ins and outs of that revelation over the Old Testament, at least not in this episode. But if it's something that you want to sort of think about more, one place I would recommend that you go is a book by Scott Hahn called A Father Who Keeps His Promises. Okay, so that book kind of traces God's covenant relationship with his people through the Old Testament and into the New. Another place you might go, which, to be honest, if you're listening to this, then you're probably already listening to it, but you might look at the Bible in a Year podcast, okay, because that uses the Great Adventure timeline, which traces God's kind of family relationship with his people. But a couple of points that I want to make about God's revelation to his people in the Old Testament. The first is that it takes time and it occurs bit by bit. God doesn't reveal himself completely to his people in one fell swoop, right? Okay, now why does he do that? Why doesn't God just completely reveal himself in one go to his people? Well, let's think of it like this. Imagine that you were a, like a top dog physicist, right? And then one day you have some sort of accident or neurological event and your memory is completely wiped. Okay, so you have no more knowledge of physics. Now, if you wanted to regain that knowledge, you would not start with hardcore physics. You would start with basic mathematics, one plus one, okay? And then you would build that knowledge over time until you were ready to start studying intense physics. I've actually stolen this idea from Father Mike Schmitz. He talks about this idea of plus one learning, that you need to start with the basics and then slowly build on people's knowledge. And that's what God does with his people through the Old Testament. So we see things like this. We see God saying things like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
Now, when God says that, he is not saying like you get revenge. Like if someone hurts you, you hurt them back. Okay. What he is saying, because he's dealing with the people, right, who are pretty fiery. Okay. And they have a tendency to go a bit overboard. (laughs) So he's saying to them, no, okay, you need to deal justly with people. You need to learn justice. If someone wrongs you, the punishment should not exceed the crime. And then once we get to the New Testament, we have Jesus building on that and saying, okay, not just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. So we've learned justice and now we need to learn mercy. Okay, the second point we need to make about the Old Testament is that it contains things that are incomplete and temporary. So what do we mean by that? Well, when original sin entered the world, it was like we had shut the door on a relationship with God. So in the Old Testament, when we see God, it's like we're looking at him through the keyhole of that door, right? Or through a veil. So we're not seeing the fullness of revelation. God is kind of hidden from our view to some extent. So although God's revelation in the Old Testament is true, it's also in a sense kind of incomplete. And as with any person, when we see them behind a veil or we we only see one aspect of their personality or we don't see the full person, we can get a kind of one-sided or inaccurate or even a warped idea of what that person looks like. And I have experienced this myself, actually. This happened to me about a year ago. I was giving doctrine classes to a friend of mine who was being received into the church. And when she had her confirmation, I met her mum. And the first thing that her mum said to me was she was like, oh, wow, you look nothing like I thought you would look like. And I was like, oh, okay, what what did you think I would look like? And she said, oh, I thought that you would have like long black straight hair and like tortoiseshell glasses and a black turtleneck and you'd be clutching a pile of books. I think she sort of pictured me as like a a cross between that nerdy chick from Scooby-Doo and like Morticia Adams. (laughs) And it kind of made sense, right? Because the only thing that she had heard from her daughter was like, this chick is teaching me all about theology and we're doing some really deep theological study. And she's like, she's doing her PhD. It's very serious. And it was very funny because I am nothing like that. Although she's not that far wrong. I do wear a lot of turtlenecks. (laughs) I wore a turtleneck to a sporting event the other day. Oh, that was a bad idea. Nothing says I'm not really into sport. I'm just here to support my cousin, like a turtleneck at a sports stadium. (laughs) Anyway, it all worked out in the end. We got on like a house on fire. She taught me how to make kombucha. Anyway, The point that I'm trying to make is that when we don't see the full person face to face, we don't necessarily get the most complete or accurate kind of picture of what they're like. Now, the fullness of divine revelation occurred in the person of Jesus Christ. And that makes sense, right? Because Jesus is God himself made man. And God can't reveal himself more fully to us than by becoming a human being and literally revealing himself to us. And Jesus says this, right? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus Christ is the fullness of divine revelation. In point number 65 of the Catechism, it quotes from this beautiful quote by St. John of the Cross, which says, In giving us his Son, his only word... He spoke everything to us at once in this sole word, and he has no more to say. 
Now, if Jesus Christ is the fullness of divine revelation, what does this mean? There are two consequences that I want to highlight. The first is that when we are reading the Bible, we have to read the God of the Old Testament in light of what we learn in the New Testament. And that can be really helpful when we come up against those things in the Old Testament where we're like, whoa, this God seems really angry all the time or like really intense or whatever. Also, by the way, if you are, you know, reading the Bible and you come up against things and you're like, oh, that seems a bit, you know, iffy or I don't know how to interpret that. A really good book that you might check out is by Trent Horn and it's called Hard Sayings. He just goes through those parts of the Bible that seem a little bit sort of controversial. Yeah. Now, it makes sense that we have to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Because, like, for instance, if you had a pen pal and the only knowledge you had of them, you gleaned from their letters and photos of them or their voice on the phone. When you met the actual person face to face, seeing that person fully in context as they are would sort of retrospectively reshape the way that you had always thought of them. You'd be like, oh, okay, you're taller than I thought you were. Or, you know, you you wouldn't look at that person and say, oh, no, no, no. But in those photos you sent me, you always looked a bit shorter. So I think you're actually short. Okay. That's a ridiculous thing to say. Okay. So our knowledge and understanding of God in the Old Testament needs to be informed by our reading of the New Testament. The second consequence of the fact that Jesus Christ is the fullness of divine revelation is that we have all of the kind of raw material that we could ever need to understand God. So the business of theology isn't to try to sort of come up with new things. It's to try to more deeply understand and explore and explain the revelation that was given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, now, if Jesus is the fullness of revelation and there will be no further revelation, does that mean that Jesus Christ has sort of explicitly spoon fed us every possible answer to every possible question we might ever have? No. Okay. That's kind of self-evident. And the catechism makes this point in number 66. It says, even if revelation is already complete, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for Christian faith gradually to grasp its full significance over the course of the centuries. And I kind of referenced this when I was talking about Revelation as the raw material that we need. Everything we need is there, but that doesn't mean that, you know, God gave us an explicit answer to the question of whether euthanasia is okay. (laughs) So, for instance, take something like the Trinity. We see the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit present in the New Testament, But it took the church hundreds of years to actually fully understand what it meant for God to be three persons in one being, okay, and to establish a clear teaching around God as Trinity. And that's really important because when someone says, oh, well, you know, you Catholics are just making stuff up because you only decided that God was really present body, blood, soul and divinity in the Eucharist in the 13th century. Okay, things like that may have taken us a long time to understand because they're really complex, big ideas, right? But that doesn't mean that we're coming up with new revelation or new information about God. It's just theologians trying over centuries to understand and explain divine revelation. Now, all of this divine revelation occurred 
over 2,000 years ago, right? So how do we, in the 21st century, how do we know about it? How is it passed on to us? Now, that might seem like a bit of a dumb question. You might be like, oh, Caitlin, duh, through the Bible. (laughs) And you're right. Yes, okay, through the Bible. But not only through the Bible. And before we go any further, I want to make one thing really clear. Here it is. You ready? Hold on to your hats. (laughs) The Bible is not divine revelation. What? Caitlin, you're starting to sound a bit like a heretic. (laughs) Okay. No, I'm not being a heretic. It's okay. Calm your farm. Cool your boots. Let's talk about it. Okay. So this isn't my idea. Okay. This is church teaching. So In 1965, the church released a dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, okay, called Dei Verbum, which is Latin for the word of God. And this is a fantastic place to go. I mean, I recommend reading the whole thing because it's very rich and it's all about this this question of divine revelation. And this document makes a clear distinction between revelation itself and handing on divine revelation. And basically what it reminds us is that the Bible is not divine revelation. Okay. God didn't just like put a book on the earth and then say like, yep, there we go. There's my revelation. We done. God himself became man and revealed himself in person. Okay. That is divine revelation. The Bible is a witness to divine revelation. It is a record of divine revelation. Now, why is that an important distinction to make? Well, because it frees us from the necessity of what we call sola scriptura, okay, or the Bible alone. If God had given us a Bible, okay, as divine revelation, then yeah, absolutely would make total sense that we'd be like, okay, well, that's the only authority. Okay, all we have is this Bible. But that's not what God did. God became man and revealed himself to us. And the Bible is a witness to that. Now, I don't want to play down the importance of the Bible. Okay, the Bible is of utmost importance. I'm not playing it down. But we need to leave room for something else. So the church teaches us in point number 80 of the catechism that sacred scripture is bound up with something else that we call sacred tradition. It says that Both of them, flowing out of the same divine wellspring, i.e. Jesus, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ. Okay, so the church teaches us that the Bible, being the written record of divine revelation, is of the utmost importance. Okay, it is the word of God written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we can't overemphasize its importance. But alongside it is something that we call apostolic or sacred tradition. Okay, now by apostolic tradition, we don't mean like small t traditions, right? Like this is just how we've always done things and then we're just going to keep doing it that way. No, what we mean is this. Okay, this is how I've heard Trent Horn, the apologist, break it down. He talks about how If we treat the Bible as purely an historical document, right, we see evidence that Jesus Christ gave authority to his apostles to preach the gospel. Now, those apostles we see in the Acts of the Apostles, 
then in turn laid hands on their successors, passed that authority on to them. Now, the Catholic Church teaches that that authority was passed on from the 12 apostles in a direct line through the bishops of the church until the present day. Now, you might hear that and think, oh, that sounds a bit dubious, right? Like, how can we trust that over 2000 years, the word of God has been preserved uncorrupted via apostolic tradition? Well, a couple of things. First of all, remember, we're not saying it was only passed on via apostolic tradition. Okay, the Bible and sacred tradition are intimately bound up with one another. But the other point that we need to make is that we're not just talking about a human institution, okay, in which... You know, people are just passing on their memories and oral traditions and sort of saying, oh, this is kind of how I remember it. And we just hope that it's remained uncorrupted. Okay, over 2000 years, we're talking about Jesus Christ giving power and authority to the apostles, telling them that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then in John chapter 14, promising them the Holy Spirit, okay, the advocate that would remain with them forever. Now, if you still feel like that's a bit dubious and that the only authority we can really rely on is the Bible, then I hate to tell you, but you're in a bit of hot water, okay, because in actual fact, the Bible itself relies on and is a witness to apostolic tradition. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is In the first centuries, okay, after the death and resurrection of Christ, there was no New Testament. Okay, all we had was apostolic tradition. All we had was the apostles preaching the word of God and then passing that authority on and then their successors also preaching the word of God. In fact, the earliest written testimonies of the word of God didn't appear until about half a century after Christ. And not only that... But the church didn't even decide what constituted sacred scripture, like what actually counted as the word of God and what went into the Bible until the end of the fourth century AD in the Council of Rome. So for the first almost 400 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, we didn't actually have an established New Testament. And the people who decided what went into the Bible weren't the apostles or even the apostles' immediate successors. They were like their successors, successors, successors. Okay. This is hundreds of years later. Okay. So we rely on apostolic tradition to even be able to say, yeah, the Bible is reliably the word of God. Now you might say, okay, so it was clear that we needed some kind of apostolic tradition in those first few hundred years after the death and resurrection of Christ. But eventually we established a Bible, okay? And once we did that, then we didn't need apostolic tradition anymore. That's a great point, okay? Thank you for bringing it up. (laughs) In response to that, I would say there's one teensy problem with the idea that the need for apostolic tradition kind of petered out, okay? (laughs) That was a very Catholic pun. (laughs) The problem is that sacred scripture does not interpret itself, Okay, and this becomes immediately clear if you start reading the Bible. There are things in there that aren't made explicitly clear, like is God Trinitarian? Is the Holy Spirit God? What is necessary for salvation? Do you need to be baptized or is it enough to just accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, is he speaking literally or figuratively? Okay, so there are big questions and the Bible doesn't give us a clear interpretation on those questions. 
Now, I've heard people counter this by saying, yeah, okay, the Bible doesn't interpret itself, but that doesn't mean that we need some authority to interpret it for us. And they use the example of our Lord on the road to Emmaus talking to the apostles. You know, God himself explains the scriptures to us. If we read the scriptures prayerfully, then we will come to a proper understanding of them. And of course, to an extent, that is absolutely true. The Holy Spirit guides us when we're reading the scriptures prayerfully. But if it were enough to just prayerfully read the scriptures and call on the Holy Spirit, then why would we have thousands upon thousands of Christian denominations of churches full of godly, prayerful people divided along lines of really important issues like baptism and women priests and the Eucharist, etc. And surely God wouldn't leave his church so bereft, knowing that good, God-fearing, prayerful people would encounter the scriptures and have such hugely different interpretations. Surely he wouldn't just leave it and be like, oh, well, they'll figure it out. Okay, because these are important issues. It makes no sense for God to give that authority to the apostles and for them to have that authority and pass it on for the first few hundred years and then for that to sort of fade away and then we're on our own. So this is why the Catholic Church believes that sacred scripture and sacred tradition are two equally important modes of transmission of divine revelation. Okay, we need the written word and we also need apostolic tradition. So the church teaches that this sacred deposit of the faith that we see in the scriptures and in apostolic tradition is entrusted to what we call the magisterium of the church or the teaching body of the church, which is made up of its bishops. Now, the role of the magisterium is to pass on and interpret the word of God as we have received it in sacred tradition and sacred scripture. The magisterium's role is not to make up new stuff, okay, as we've said before. There's a difference between interpretation and, like, new revelation. And it's also not the magisterium's role to be like, this is how every single verse of scripture must be interpreted, okay? The bishops aren't getting around being like, nope, we're doing all of the interpretation for you. You don't get to do any thinking on your own. We're in charge of your reading of scripture. We're not saying that we're incapable of interpreting scripture ourselves. What we're saying is that there are key points at which the buck stops, okay? At which someone with authority has to say, okay, no, this is the correct interpretation on this really important issue. So that's the job of the magisterium. But within those limits set by the church, those points of definitive interpretation, we have total freedom. Okay, so I've heard it being explained before, kind of like a walled garden. Okay, so you've got this beautiful garden and you've got, you know, all these children running around in the garden. If there are no walls around that garden, then there's the danger that the children are going to kind of run off into the woods, right? But if you have those walls, then the children are free to just run around and pick their own bouquets and play on the equipment and do whatever they want. And personally, I find that way more freeing than if we didn't have a magisterium. If we didn't have some authority saying, okay, here is the definitive teaching on the big questions, 
then I would be like, every time I read the Bible, I'd be like, what if I'm getting this wrong? I don't know. What if I'm saying something really heretical? Fantastic thing is we do have, you know, a catechism. Okay. We've got dogmas. We've got things that we can turn to and be like, okay, here are the limits within those limits. Woohoo! I'm free. Do whatever I want. And okay. This is a really important point. Point number 86 of the catechism. The magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it. Okay, so the magisterium does not have the power to say, okay, well, this was previously dogma, but uh, we're actually going to revoke it and change our minds. And this is now what the Catholic Church teaches. No, the magisterium does not have that power. The role of the magisterium is to hand on what has been passed on to it. So point number 86 again tells us that the magisterium listens to the word of God devotedly, guards it with dedication and expounds it faithfully. So the magisterium can explain certain teachings of the faith, can develop them and clarify them, but it doesn't change them. Okay. (laughs) We're getting there, guys. This is a lot. My head hurts. (laughs) One last thing before we wrap up. A brief note on how we should read sacred scripture. So the Second Vatican Council outlined three criteria for interpreting scripture that will kind of help us to make sure that we don't sort of shoot off in random weird directions. And basically these three criteria all have to do with context and context in three areas. The context of the whole of scripture, the context of the living tradition of the church, and the context of all of the truths of the faith as we know them. Okay, so let's quickly unpack those three criteria. So the context of the whole of scripture. Basically, this means that we don't just like cherry pick bits of scripture, okay, and then just say, oh, well, what about this? We have to read scripture holistically, okay? So if we're coming up with a verse from scripture or an interpretation of a moment in scripture that seems to contradict the scriptures as a whole, then we're doing something wrong. Okay. Point number 112 of the catechism says different as the books, which compose scriptures may be scripture is a unity. So there should be harmony between all the things that we read in scripture. And secondly, the context of the living tradition of the church So the same thing, if we're coming up with interpretations of scripture that seem to contradict what the church has taught for the last 2000 years, then we're doing something wrong. Okay, we need to rethink and go a bit deeper and spend some time understanding what the church teaches and why. And then thirdly, the context of the coherence of the truths of the faith. Basically, as Christians, we can't believe things that contradict each other. Okay. Basically, all of this is to say that if we're coming up with stuff that seems contradictory, we need to zoom out and take in the full context of the scriptures, the living tradition of the church and all of the truths of the faith and try to see what we're reading in light and in the context of all of those things. Okay, (laughs) we did it. We got there. Gosh, there's so much in there. I feel exhausted. Um, And to be honest, there's so much more that we could say, okay, because this is a huge topic, divine revelation. And if there are questions that are still unanswered, that's fine. I would encourage you to read something like Dei Verbum, okay, or check out, obviously look at the catechism, or you could look at the works of Scott Hahn 
And the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, which has a lot of fantastic video and audio resources on the Bible and Bible history, etc. But that's all we have time for today. Before I go, just a couple of really quick things. First of all, you might be looking at the uploads for this podcast and thinking, hang on a second, Caitlin. In your description, it says that you were going to upload fortnightly and you just uploaded three episodes in three weeks. What happened? Did you just get a little bit overexcited? And the answer to that is yes, I did. But... Also, it was deliberate, okay, because these three episodes kind of speak to each other and are really foundational. So I wanted to sort of deliver them in fairly quick succession. But from today, I will be uploading fortnightly because Lordy May, making a podcast is a lot of work. The other thing I wanted to say is if this podcast is helping you, please pass it on to your friends or to anyone you think could benefit from it. Of course, things like, you know, ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are fantastic and really helpful. And thank you to the people who've done that. I really appreciate it. But the main thing, I think, is just to share these things one on one with your friends and use them as a basis for a conversation or a doctrine class or, you know, doing further research with them. Okay, so our next episode is going to be on the nature of God. What is God like? Okay, I'm so excited for that episode. It's going to be such fun. Until then, I hope you stay safe and well. Thank you for sticking with me and I'll see you next time. Bye.